I am fortunate that I was able to directly apply what I had just done in history and researched and wrote about in business. And that's kind of where I launched my subsequent business career is based on all these concepts of how do you build trust through empathy and how do you put yourself in your whatever the stakeholder group is, customer, employee, how do you put yourself in their shoes so that you can co-create a solution with them? Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook, the podcast where we welcome business leaders, CEOs, and industry experts to discuss the rise to the top, building wealth, and real estate insights. Here's your host, Jeremy Spann. Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook. For more information on this show, you can go to our website, myexperiencedrealtor.com. That's experience with an ED for my fellow Marines out there. Have a little problem spelling. Myexperiencedrealtor.com. You click on podcasts. You can download all these episodes from all the different platforms. Or if you're looking to buy and sell real estate anywhere on the planet and you need a trusted professional, even if it's not in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, go to the homepage, click Trusted Professional, and we will make sure that you get the right professional that helps you navigate the real estate process. But we're not here to talk about that today. Today, you'll click on that podcast, scroll down to John Southerd, longtime friend, former business partner. How you doing, John? Good, man. Glad to be here. Man, I am excited that you're here, mainly because... As long as I've known you, you only say an average of about three <laughs> words a year. And so the content that we get out of this show today will be actually accumulate for more words than I've ever heard you say all in one setting. I mean, because you're this big extrovert and all, right? Yeah. Right? yeah totally. Like, just like you. I'm just like you. So as always, I got to start this off with a little joke because my uh, my father-in-law says I should do a joke and then okay. I intentionally do bad jokes. And okay. I think you'll really appreciate this one um, with wait. a passion that you and your dad share. Okay. Ready? Why does a pitcher raise one leg when he throws the ball? No clue. Because if he raised both, he'd fall down. Classic. Classic dad joke. <laughs> From Spain. <laughs> it's so simple. It's so simple. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, what's really funny is everybody's been really surprised that I've kept these somewhat clean. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm shocked. <laughs> right? I'm shocked. You're like, wait a minute. And you you could actually spell that. <laughs> so, man, I really appreciate you coming on. As you know, I've had Chad on already. Mm-hmm. And for the audience is John... And Chad, if you go back to Chad Mills' episode, and I and several others were duped into becoming alleged business partners in a company that was later indicted by the SEC. Well, actually, the company wasn't. We weren't. But the CEO and the COO were indicted by the SEC because, as it turns out, everything that they were doing was BS. And it was, um, how did they say? I think it was a Ponzi scheme or something like Mm. that. So they did some Bernie Madoff stuff, and the rest of us had no idea. But we all ended up landing on our rears pretty hard. But we've all managed, and that was five years ago. You know, it was really funny as I was sitting there thinking about this, and uh, Aaron, my producer, was asking me, she goes, yeah, it's been really amazing to watch, you know, that that was just five years ago and how far you've come, right? I says, well, and Chad, and John, and Chris, and all the other, you know, ones that also got duped in this thing, right? So it was like the best, worst experience any of us could have ever happened because it allowed us to learn 
Um, and so as I, you've heard in the other episode, right? As I refer to him as the old man and his little buddy. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Which anybody that knows will find that statement to be really hilarious because of some things. Um, but you're going to laugh at this. So I was um, speaking with one of my friends that we were courting as an investor when we were with that company, mm-hmm. uh, my buddy Tim, that I did my MBA with. And, you know, Tim and I have still remained good friends. He ultimately didn't invest in the company, thank goodness, right? Because as we would turn out, a lot of people lost a lot of money. Um, I probably lost a lot of relationships out of it. And, you know, for, for good reason, right? I mean, look, when you when somebody trusts you with your money, regardless if you were the person that manifested it to be wrong or not, you're still in that chain of links, Right. 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 So your guilt by association or anything. So I totally get it. And those relationships that were soured out of it, I totally understand. It and I don't, I don't fault them. And if there's anything I can ever do to try to make up for that, I am working on that every single day because I want to give back to them because they got screwed. We got screwed. Everybody got screwed. But the funny thing is, is so Tim calls me a couple of weeks ago and he's been engaging with me on some real estate stuff, right? Because as it turns out is I have two methodologies. One Create an actual case study that is validated by actual financial statements <laughs> that are generated from an actual bank account. Who'd have thought? Right. Who'd I know. Thought? Instead of some hocus pocus wave of magic wand around. And then secondly, I always ask myself is what would the old man and his little buddy do? And then I do the opposite. <laughs> and it, as it turns out, it's the moral and ethical thing to go do. Uh, so anyhow, he had called me and he was, he's got a family office, right? So he's part of family office, uh, him and several other high net worth folks. And he called me and he says, man, you're not going to guess. I was out of town. I missed a board meeting. And we've been looking to invest in some single family um, residential rentals. And he was out of the meeting. He got back and they were catching him up. They were like, yeah, man, we had this guy did a presentation and it was incredible. And I mean, this this guy is going to just create value and blah, blah, blah. And he, and he starts asking a lot of questions. He was like, man, there's a lot of things that you guys are saying that I've heard before. And then they said his name. And he goes, does the guy look like this? And he goes, yeah. And he went, no fucking way. <laughs> no, no, we kill it. That dude is a scam it artist. Was him? It was him wow. that presented to them. And it just happened to be that small. Look, Texas is the smallest, biggest state Sure. On the planet when it comes to, you know, everybody knows each other, yeah. right? Almost like a tree with no branches. It's incestuous, doesn't branch out that far, right? Mm-hmm. And he was like, no. He was like, that guy's a criminal. He gave them the story of what happened to us and everything else. And so anyhow, I thought it was just really, really funny. But one of the things that I did enjoy out of it is he was like, hey, look, man, I know that went really bad for you. And he goes, and I, and I know that you had no idea, but you're still the guy that I want to talk to you about going doing this because – I know you're going to do it right. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, I thought it was kind of funny with you coming in here today. And he had called me a couple of weeks ago and talked about that, that that guy's still swimming around. And he actually looked at his um, board and was like, that guy got indicted by the SEC. We don't give money to people that got indicted and found guilty by the SEC because he's a criminal. <laughs> yes. So anyhow, that for the audience is how John and I got to know each other. And it was really interesting is – as the company grew in the boardroom of Frostbank, remember that? Yeah. Right? And yeah. so it grew. Actually, it started off in the boardroom at Mira Vista Country Club, but then that room became too small. And then we had the big round table. Mm-hmm. And then one day, I see this very handsome fella that walks in and is very careful about all the words he chooses. Very. Very careful. Like, words matter, right, John? Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you remember who I sat next to? You. <laughs> 
And do you know what I remember? I remember walking into that room, as you said, very carefully. And like seeing these, uh, it must have been 10 to 12 people at the time. And I just happened to pick the empty chair next to you. (laughs) And I remember looking to my right (laughs) and seeing like 15 different colored pins (laughs) (laughs) next to a notebook and thinking, what have I got myself into? <laughs> like, what is going on with Rain Man over yeah, here? Yeah. <laughs> and I remember you you asking me like these very serious, what are you doing? I know we'll get into this, but why did you leave academia? I don't get it. Like just <laughs> pointed questions. And that was my introduction to you. <laughs> and Pin, here, pins and these pointed questions. And it, here it is. See, that was back. So that was what, 14? That was summer of 14. Summer of 14. Uh-huh. And then here it is. We're in the summer of 21. So uh, apparently, I must have not pissed you off too bad if you're still, if you're still talking to me seven <laughs> no, years later. <laughs> no. No, you didn't. Man, I tell you, it was so – let's dive into that. Let's dive into who you are so the audience understands you and your very unique path in life, right? Mm-hmm. Um so, and then we're going to get into what you're doing now, cap teams, all that other stuff that'll make sense to the audience later mm-hmm. is, so your dad, just like my dad's Vietnam vet, mm-hmm. right? And he was Marine, right? Yes. And so he was, what years was he Vietnam? 70 to 71. He joined the Marine Corps in 69 and then went over there in 70 and left in 71. Okay. And then uh, um, you came along into this fine world. What was that like growing up with a dad who's also very, very your dad your dad was actually what the pitching coach for TCU, right? No, but my dad was I mean, he could have been. He was a kinesiology professor at TCU. That's what it was. So was he, to remember. he yeah, specialized yeah, yeah. in biomechanics and motor behavior. And within that, he specialized in pitching mechanics. So he was a pitcher himself in college, really hard throwing left-handed pitcher, and he carried that um, into his professor days. And so that's his connection to pitching. And so, yeah, he and I, well, back to your question, growing up with him, it was like growing up with a Marine. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there was no, very seldom did my two older sisters and I get to sleep in on a Saturday or a Sunday because Reveille was being played or yelled by my dad at 6 a.m. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's how it was. And that's how I'm sure his students would tell you that he was, how he was as a professor. So if any of his students are listening or watching, it's it's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> so you grow up in a very structured household. And, and by the way, we're making a lot of light jokes. This. Your dad's an incredible human being. Oh, yeah. He, he is just, I mean... Like you, not a man of a lot of words, very chosen words, mm-hmm. but just a Marine's Marine, right? Correct. And, and just a great, great, great human being. And uh, so you grow up, you decide you're going to flee the nest. Mm-hmm. Where do you go? I, well, first off, so you grow up here. I did. Born and raised in Fort Worth and went to TCU for undergrad. And I had always had – I'm in business now – of course, but I'd always had this interest in history, and I can even vividly remember in elementary school having this interest in things like the Titanic, 
So if a teacher's talking about, you know, in elementary school, it's not like you're going through an hour lecture. But if it's mentioned, I always thought of how did that happen? Why did that happen? What were the events that led to the sinking of the Titanic? What decisions were made that led to that? And all this kind of why and how and cause and effect. And that carried through high school and then into college. So I went to TCU, majored in business, though, because at that point in time, I'm 19 years old. And like most 19-year-old kids or adults, I guess, technically, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And certainly at that point, I hadn't thought of making history a career because I didn't know that that was a thing. I didn't know that existed. But in college, I majored in business and got about two and a half years in. And I just, I couldn't make this connection between a SWOT analysis and what I went home to now. So for the, for the, for the audience, I know what a SWOT analysis, you know what a SWOT analysis is. For the audience, what's a SWOT analysis? So it's a way that you assess strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. So if you're creating a company or forming a strategy for an existing company, it's a way that you assess where you're situated within uh, the competition that's out there and where you might gain an advantage along the way. Um, and I feel like <laughs> that was hammered in my head in the Neely School in undergrad. But I would come home and read history books. And at that point in college, it was military history. So I was really into the Band of Brothers books and D-Day and Stephen Ambrose and Flags of Our Fathers, lots of World War II or getting into Vietnam with Carlos Hathcock and his books on the, you know, being a Marine sniper. Um, but it wasn't until I took an elective called the History of Ancient China and Japan. I took it as an elective because it was a history class and I liked history. And that completely changed my life. The professor, Peter Worthing, he's still there. He's now a dean, though. But he walked in the class, and he had this genuine passion for teaching history. And he had this genuine passion for making sure that students were understanding history. And he, it was one of those classes where you looked forward to an 8 a.m. class. It was one of those hour and 20-minute classes where it just flies by. And that rarely happens in college, right? And so he would walk in, and I remember, like, in my head, pointing to him and saying, that's what I want to do. And that's what I can do. And, you know, you always hear, find what you love and make that a career. And so I thought, well, that's what I'll do. So I decided to become a history professor where I thought that's what, <laughs> where, life, <laughs> where life would take me. So I extended my undergrad a year so I could get enough credits to be a history minor. Went to grad school at history. So I got my master's in history at TCU then went on to get my PhD at Texas Tech because I knew I wanted to study Vietnam and Texas Tech. I think this still holds up. Of all places, Lubbock, Texas has the largest archive on the Vietnam War in the world. And so I went there so because I knew that was right there. And I uh, graduated with my PhD in 2011. And I'll, I'll, I know we'll come back to this, but my dissertation that became a book unbeknownst at the time, became the foundation of my business career, of how I think about solving problems or how I uh, propose solutions for business problems. We can come back to that if we need to. But graduated in 2011, and if we think of the context, 2011, the recession from 08 is still raging. So job markets all over were terrible, and academia was no different. 
So in 2011, the number of with in history, the number of history PhDs was on the rise and the number of jobs was on the decline. And so simple supply and demand tells you that there's not a lot of jobs and there's a lot of people applying. So if you do get a job in that market, you're not going to get paid a lot. But anyways, I was lucky to actually get a job. The day I graduated, I found out I got a job at Georgia State, which is just a temporary three-year gig, full-time, but temporary. And so I went on to teach for three years at Georgia State in Atlanta. And then the short version is after those three years, having applied to approximately 150 jobs in those three years, I didn't get anything. So I decided to just leave academia entirely, just quit cold turkey and move back home to Fort Worth and said, I'm going to try to get into business. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it's like, how do I now, how do I transition? Here we are back in Fort Worth. It's my home. I know people, but still, how do I go from teaching history in college to business? And we're going to come, we're going to come back to that. Mm -hmm. um, when you were teaching at Georgia, um, what was the classes you were teaching? I taught your run-of-the-mill U.S. history survey class, and then I taught an upper-level class on the Vietnam War. Okay. And so I'm going to assume that you like the Vietnam class better than oh, regular yeah. U.S. history. Yeah. I, I think most history professors or people who teach history in college will tell you that they enjoy the upper-level class more than the survey simply because it's it's usually your specialty. Like survey class is great. You get to teach. I love teaching. But if I get to teach my specialty, I mean, that's that's my niche. So you're teaching there and then you don't get any other jobs. You're heavily overqualified, right? What was that feeling like of just, I mean, this is where you, this is what you were going to do in just the disappointment of that. Talk me through that. That is, so that would be the summer of 2014, and that is no doubt the low point of my professional career. It's not even close. Because, so if we go back and look at April of 2014, so my contract with Georgia State University was up in May of 2014. And in April, so a month before, I had my last what would be my last job interview. I was a finalist for a position and I didn't get it. And so I came home when I found out I didn't get it and I was just floored. I lost it because all these thoughts go through my head. Like, what did I just spend the last 10 years of my life doing? All this student loan debt, dragging my family, which my wife and then two really small kids across the country from Texas to Atlanta. And now what do I do? And so this feeling of complete failure, and then we decided to move back home to Texas and we had to live with my parents because I didn't make enough money to create any kind of substantive savings account. And so we had no money. So we had to live with my parents. So here, as if I couldn't fall further, I love my parents, but it's still, you have a PhD, you just taught college for three years, seemed like you were on this successful trajectory and suddenly you're living with your parents, with your wife and your two kids and just feeling like an abject failure and wondering, 
should I have gotten this history PhD? Should I have wasted? I don't think it's wasted anymore. But at the time when you're in sheer misery, you think I just wasted 10 years of my life getting a history PhD. And it's it seems to be worth nothing at this point. How many insecurities did that create inside of you? Countless. Right. Countless. And then not only that, feeling that that pressure of failure from that, you would go on, which we'll talk, we're going to make that transition to talk to this, to go to the, the thing that would also just take you to the next level. Right? Yes. <laughs> talk about, I mean, man, it's like Glass Joe. Remember that Mike Tyson's punch out? Mm-hmm. It's like literally your Glass Joe, right? <laughs> just get beat up. And then, so let's, <laughs> let's real quick, because we would be amiss if we didn't talk about one of the most incredible elements of your life, your wife, Rachel. Mm-hmm. Where do y'all meet? We met at a Let's bar. talk about this. Yeah, let's talk about this. Because, look, you're looking – if you're watching this, you see this handsome, very astute PhD guy, you know, that looks all, you know, like very proper. But it's less than proper because how did you meet your wife and what were you doing at the time, John? <laughs> I met my wife at a bar. <laughs> and it was – it's not there anymore, but it was called the Moon Bar by TCU, right next to the Aardvark. Yep. I, going back to your comment about being uh, an extrovert, your sarcastic comment about me being an extrovert, <laughs> which might surprise people, I used to play in a band in college. And that night, I was playing an acoustic set with a couple of friends at the Moon, and my sister knew Rachel and so asked her to come listen to me play, and that's where we met. And just sweeped her off her feet with my vocals and guitar playing. <laughs> and I, I can't help not but at sit all. here. Not I, at all. I, I'm I, kidding. I, I, I'm sitting here laughing because if anybody knew John, you would just – when you hear that story, but you're around John, like if you don't know John, like I know John, and you hear that story, you're like – this is literally like a story of oil and vinegar, right? Yeah. Like, 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 how does this, what? Like, huh? And so it just goes to show you, like, you know, people have many layers to them. So Rachel's following you, and y'all, matter of fact, so Charlie and Olive are now 8 and 10. Yeah, they're about to be, Olive turns 8 tomorrow, and then Charlie will be 10 in October. Yeah, and so, so you leave this misery Feeling the pressure of failure, all these insecurities, mm-hmm. living with mom and dad, mm-hmm. which, I mean, I'm sure that goes over like a turd in a punch bowl, <laughs> um, you know, because I'm sure Rachel's very ecstatic about yeah. that, right? Uh-huh. But the one thing I will say is this, is, is and, and, and I think that for any successful man out there, one of the keys to truly being successful is having a partner in life. That when they said through thick and thin till death do us part, health and sickness, you 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 put that one to the test with her, didn't you? There is no question. And I go back, and it wasn't just that summer, you know, living with my parents and thinking I'm an abject failure. But even before that, when I was getting my PhD in Lubbock, of all places, like who wants to move to Lubbock? I love you, Lubbock, but in my circumstance, it like it wasn't like a real big attractor for Rachel coming from DFW. 
But she dropped what she was doing. We got married. She dropped what she was doing in Arlington. She had a really good job. Friends moved out to Lubbock with me so that I could finish. And so spending countless hours and however many sleepless nights doing comprehensive exams and writing my dissertation, then being willing to say, okay, I know you have to apply for all these jobs at some point for when you graduate with your PhD, we got to get a job somewhere. And I'm willing to go wherever you get a job. That could be middle of nowhere, New Hampshire. That could be California. It ended up being Atlanta, but I got that job and she was 100% supportive of that. And then to go there for three years and me make next to nothing as a teacher, which surprises a lot of people, but it's true that when you have the economics of that, uh, of the job market, I didn't make much money. And so at the end of the day, my take home pay was enough to pay rent and half the electric bill. And that's no joke. And everything else was just like, okay, in two weeks, we get paid again, but what are we going to do with this $30? We, we have these kids, like it, it was awful. And, but she was still there supporting me and supporting my journey to being essentially a tenure track history professor, which was my goal. That didn't happen. And then once I didn't get that, uh, that tenure track job, being supportive of going back home and living with my parents and then going through the nightmare that was the company that we were in together, not because of you, but because yeah. of the other forces and just staying with me, as you said, through thick and thin. And I know you have the exact same or very similar situation. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, look, the key to my success is my wife. Right. I Mm -hmm. mean, and and, and also the thing, too, is Rachel's incredibly successful. Mm -hmm. Right. And in audience listening is you will want to download Rachel Southard's episode uh, that'll drop around the same time or within a couple of weeks of, of John's episode because she's just a an incredible human that just stuck with you through thick through thin thick and thin, but also just become a dynamo in being success in business, right? And but so you come back living with mom and dad, which I'm sure your dad, the Marine Corps veteran, the only Vietnam veteran, the only thing that really probably satisfied him is because he used to hang out with his grandkids, right? <laughs> yeah, <You know>? yeah. <laughs> I, I think it did for a couple of weeks, and then he's like, all right, get out of here. Yeah, you're going to have to find a place. <laughs> no, to go. they were supportive the entire time. Mm. And then, um, so how do you get introduced to the company that you and I would ultimately be uh, a part of? I networked like it was my full-time job. And it was, first I had to learn how to network. I'm a historian. I was teaching in college. I had a LinkedIn account, but had like five people on my LinkedIn. <laughs> and I, I was like, what do I do? Who do I talk to? Everyone from high school or most of my friends from high school still lived here and were in business. Some of my friends from college at TCU still live in Fort Worth. So I, you know, started talking to them, figuring out what do I do? I went to networking groups. Like there's this big one called the South Lake Focus Group where you go and give like your 30-second elevator speech to a room full of 300 people. And I I made business cards that said, what did it say? History professor turned aspiring business professional. 
And so only, so someone with, only, only, so only, only someone with a PhD could come up with some bullshit like that, right? <laughs> so stupid. So stupid. But I, but I, I would create essentially a scorecard for myself and say, okay, you talk to this person, get three more people from that person. And I just repeated that over and over. And a friend of mine from high school, and I don't blame him for this anymore. But, but <laughs> anymore. Int- yeah, introduced me to... A yeah. guy who was the CEO of this startup company that the old I, man. yeah that I knew absolutely nothing about, and there was this um, because in when I studied history, I studied the Marine Corps and this. I know we'll get into this later, but a particular counterinsurgency program that the Marine Corps did in Vietnam, and that was kind of our connection to okay, you were in the Marine Corps, I studied the Marine Corps, so. Why don't you come and see what our company's doing, and we'll go from there. And then so, that's when we get to me seeing all the pins on the table. <laughs> <laughs> Which was funny because I had so many colors because I'm so ADD, like a squirrel on methamphetamines, that I was trying to create processes of how I could remember. <laughs> but the problem was is I would forget what color went with what. And it was, all it did was look like literally a coloring book is all it looked like. It was horrible. But let's 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 talk about the old man because, look, what I don't – think a lot of people truly understand or appreciate is I think it would be fair to say that he was very charismatic. Yes. So your first introduction with him, walk me through the, I mean, because we were all inspired by him, right? Oh yeah. There is not a single person that you can talk to. Now they will run his name through the mud, which us as professionals on purpose, we don't bring up his name or Mm -hmm. little buddy's name. Mm -hmm. Um, But, um, but he was, a retired Marine, mm-hmm. and he had an incredibly impressive Marine Corps track, right? Mm-hmm. And so anybody that it's not post-company days, but your first encounter with him, tell me, tell me about that. It was inspiring. And I think, as you said, most people <clears throat> who meet him for the first time or met him for the first time would say something similar. I mean, he, like you said, he had this impeccable resume and was very charismatic and just inspiring, was, was always, always knew what motivated each individual person. And so my introduction to him was just very motivating and me asking, hey, I want to get involved in business, but what do I do? What do I need to read? And so he gives me specific books to read. Oh, I remember like, the give list. Me, give me a call in whenever you finish those books, which was a week. <laughs> and I had nothing else to do. I was living with my parents. <laughs> I can read two books in a week. And give me a call when you're done and we'll talk about them and then you know talk about what your next steps might be. So just very motivating. So I was like, oh, man, I'm going to go home. I read those two books. I think they were both Jim Collins books. And I, like a historian does, I was critiquing everything. Where are all the sources? This is, this is not a well-sourced <laughs> book. And um, then my next phone call with him was the, hey, we have our company meeting every whatever day it was. I don't remember. Yeah. But I just remember it was the same day at the same time mm-hmm. at the same place. Yeah. But, fact, but, it was, uh, but he was – very successful at explaining how he thought my history background could integrate with what you guys were doing. Let's let's talk about that. So that way the audience understands is why he was drawing you into the company. Um, Well, first off, 
uh, one of the things we would later find out uh, that was a commonality of all of us that uh, allowed him to manipulate all of us is how much experience did any of us have in real estate? Zero. Zero. That was the one thing we all had in common. As different as we all were that ultimately got duped, Mm -hmm. that was how he was able to do it is because none of us knew anything about real estate. And then he was presenting this unicorn that drew us all into it because we were all service mindset folks. That was the other thing we had in common, whether being former police officers, veterans, quite a few Marines sitting around the table, but we all had a heart for, for, for humans, right? It's funny because the bittersweet, as much as humans can annoy me, I wouldn't have spent a life in service if I didn't really care about humans. Mm -hmm. And we all did. So none of us knew anything about real estate. We all cared about humans and he's pitching this thing. And this is where, when I was asking you the point of the questions, basically interrogating you, because yeah. I was still at Fort Worth PD and I was a detective and I was literally interrogating you. Yes. Is going, well, wait a minute. What are you bringing to the table? Let's talk about why you were brought into the company, going back to what you specialized in your PhD. Let's talk about that. Yeah. My dissertation was on a group called... um Combined action platoons. This was uh, during the Vietnam War. The Marine Corps looked around. So we're looking at 1965. So combat operations, getting real technical here, started in March of 65 when the Marines arrived in Da Nang. And the U.S. military, when they came to Vietnam, essentially, and there are military historians who would disagree to a certain extent, but... They essentially took the strategy from World War II, extracted it from the Pacific and Europe, and put it in the triple canopy jungles of Vietnam. And the problem with that is that in World War II, it was pretty simple. I mean, it wasn't simple, but you find the enemy and you kill them. And as long as you kill more of them than they kill of you... You win. Mm -hmm. And so they took that, put it in Vietnam, and it didn't work out like that because America's enemy in Vietnam didn't have recognizable insignia. So it wasn't like they wore uniforms where a U.S. Marine could look across the way and say, that's a German soldier. That's a Japanese soldier. This was a guerrilla war. This was the enemy that looked like civilians and looked like villagers. And so there was a lot of searching for the enemy like was done in World War II, but it was really difficult to kill them because they intentionally avoided contact with the Americans. And so what the Marines did is they came in and said, that doesn't seem to be working too well. So instead of measuring success by the number of dead enemy bodies, we should measure success by the number of Vietnamese civilians that we're protecting. So they created this program called the Combined Action Program that sent I still have to gasp, 19-year-old Marines to live in Vietnamese villages to essentially defend and in the process befriend these villagers. So in order to do that, these, let me say it again, 19-year-old enlisted Marines had to empathize (laughs) and they had to try to create trust through empathy. And 
If you know anything about U.S. Marines, or especially <laughs> U.S. Marines in Vietnam, that seems like the worst idea you've ever heard. Just the worst idea ever. But it, 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 it's this story of this incredible transformation where the Marines come in literally hating these people. And that's not just my academic analysis. That's from my interviews with these Marines saying we hated these people when we got there. We didn't trust them. And we left essentially loving these people. And so I looked at how, did, how and why does that happen? How and why do 19-year-old Marines who just got out of a search and destroy mission where they came across a village and maybe uh, pushed a couple villagers around or sometimes used deadly force against villagers. How do you go from that to living with them? And what happens in the meantime? And so they just, through empathy and through trying to cultivate this mutual trust, delivered these needs. So it's like, okay, what needs can we deliver for you? What can we procure from nonprofits? What can we procure from local military bases to give you what, you're, what you need, essentially to make friends with you? Because these villagers knew where the enemy was and they knew where they were hiding. So essentially it was, we need to go there to gain intel on the enemy's whereabouts. But in the process, they became friends with these people. And so in order to become friends with them and in order to increase, literally increase your chance of survival, they thought, well, let's figure out what they need and let's deliver it to them. So you start seeing schoolhouses being built. You start seeing bridges being built over streams that are carrying dead bodies and dead animals and who knows what else. And it's where these villagers are walking across to get to another part, <clears throat> to another village perhaps. And now they're building a bridge so they don't have to walk through that. They're building water wells. They're building man-made lakes. And then they're also in the process delivering what I call covert needs. So it's delivering needs that the villagers didn't even know that they had, which would be medical attention. And so each combined action platoon, so you're looking at in each village about 10 Marines. And again, shocking, 10 Marines have to cover hundreds of villagers across five square miles. That's shocking. And they have a medic, a corpsman, and that corpsman has to deliver medical support to villagers that don't trust him. So he has to <laughs> essentially hand out aspirin and Tylenol, if you will, to villagers that have never seen of it, seen or seen or heard that name at all. They're used to, no joke, witch doctors and sorcerers trying to cure gunshot wounds by boiling spider webs in water. And how do you convince these people to trust you? Um, and so when I got to this company that we're talking about and the point where we are in my career, the idea was to take what the Marines did, my specialty, which I, I knew and still know front to back what they did, how they did it, and apply that to our business. So our business was owning apartment communities. And so how do you take that concept of not, build, not, building trust not, through empathy? Not just apartment <clears throat> communities, but where? In a very low-income area um, in DFW. And so it was – so. We took that model and applied it to those apartment communities. So we have to show up. I mean, we didn't have to live with the people, 
That would be kind of weird, but that's what the Marines did. They lived with these people, got to understand who they are, got to understand their needs, and then tried to deliver those needs based on their conversations. <clears throat> and then over a long period of time, in our case, the target was if we can build this community of trust, then we can increase occupancy. We can maximize, maximize occupancy and <clears throat> eventually get the greatest rate of return, right? Yeah. Do you remember the uh, first – how many units was that one? We won't list the address, but that, mm -hmm. that, that first one um, – how many units was that? Was that like 40 units, I think? Or that, like that first one? Well, there was a, a relatively small one that was just a street of duplexes. duplexes. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're yeah, talking yeah, about the yeah, next I, one. The next one, the next one. I think that one was about 40. 40. Yeah. And, uh, and we were literally coming in. It's like, ah, like it's very similar, right? The blue-eyed devil is here, and oh, they're just here to take our money. I yeah. vivid, vividly remember Showing up, again, low-income area, showing up in our cars, and just the word car is more than they had. Yeah. So I'm not talking about nice cars. I'm just talking any car. They see that and like, oh, man, look at these millionaires showing up. Who are these people walking <laughs> around? Millionaires? Yeah. Right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'll, explain, <laughs> I'll explain that in a minute. And so here we show up, fresh out of our whatever we called it, all staff meeting. We all yeah. roll up in our cars. There's probably 10 or 12 of us. We're in our business casual. And I remember walking around and coming into that thinking, oh, these people are going to love us. They're going to come out and talk to us. And, you know, it's going to be really easy for us to figure out what they need and deliver those needs to them. But I vividly remember walking around. No one's out. Everyone's like peeking through windows. Who are these, who are these white guys out there? <laughs> That's what it was. And a guy walked out and he said, what are all you white millionaires doing here? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was when, his statement. But that's yeah. when it hit me that we're doing this all wrong. Yeah. And I punched myself in the face thinking about it still because how did I not or how did we not prepare for that? Yeah. Knowing that the Marines in these combined action platoons in Vietnam essentially did the exact same thing. Yeah. Made these assumptions about how these people would react and they were completely wrong. And so once – that tenant made that statement. I thought, we got to go back. We can't show up with cars. Just show up in shorts and a T-shirt and just try to blend in. Immerse yourself as much as you can in that environment so that they trust you a little more. They don't see you as the hawkish landlord who's coming there to take their rent money. Yeah. And what's really interesting about that particular dynamic on on that asset, too, was – we get in there, and when I say this was a distressed asset, that is <sighs> an understatement, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this thing, it would have just been better just to level it and rebuild it. But so we go back. I remember we regroup. You say, hey, look, this is a strategy. we got to build trust with these folks. And right now, we, we just did that wrong. And so we, we get in there, and we start talking with them. Like mm -hmm. I remember, like you didn't see a soul out, right? And Not so, one. imagine a horseshoe-shaped apartment complex, right? Mm -hmm. And the courtyard—I mean, man, it, there's drug needles, there's shell casings, yep. you know, yep. there's trash, Everywhere. broken glass, 
And you were like, hey, scratch some trash bags. And we all went out there. So the next time we go back, we're dressed more to blend in. And there's less of us. So we're not overwhelming. We didn't overwhelm. We went out there with a handful of us. And we're out there picking up trash to clean up this courtyard. And and, and it was funny because I can remember them laughing, right? Yeah. Yeah. They were like, what the hell are these white people doing, right? (laughs) They're here picking it. First, they show up in all nice cars, and then now they're out here picking up trash. Like, what yeah. the hell? And what it would, and without making sauce, because that's not what we're here to do, mm-hmm. is eventually what it would evolve into was we created an environment where when we would pull up, you could hear children laughing. Yeah. I still get goosebumps I mean, thinking about too. this. I do too. Playing, running around, neighbors talking to each other. And and it was just this amazing environment where instead of going, hey, listen, we really need you to pay rent, they were coming to us going, hey, here's our rent check, mm-hmm. right? I mean, so we did. And that was in a short amount of time until the old man's little buddy, who would ultimately bed down another new entrant to the group, mm-hmm. uh, who came in and we all hated her. Not because she was new to the group. It's because she was a cancer. She was mean. She was contentious. She was just this person that was incredibly disruptive. And I'll never forget. So we were all ledge partners, right? And so if we were going to add a new partner, everybody had to vote on it. And I'll never forget when the old man was going around talking to everybody going, what do you think? What do you think about adding her? And we were all like... Fuck no, man. <laughs> she's a horrible human being. She's she's mean. And 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 then ultimately we were at one of our weekly meetings and it was like, hey, welcome cancer stick. Uh, because she's and like, I'm not here to if anybody's got cancer or anything else. If you were a part of the group, you would understand what we mean by by that, because she was a chain smoker. And, and and he was like, yeah. So we had a unanimous vote that we're going to hear. And we were all like, what? Because I remember sitting next to him. I was like, hey, how did you vote? And you were like, no, hell no. And I looked at Chad and I was like, how did you vote? And Jeff and Chris and all the others, with the exception of the old man, his little buddy, and his two little followers, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at Jeff and Jeff was like, uh-uh. I told him, no, I'll leave if she comes mm-hmm. on. And um, and that's that was the first to me, that was the first, What you know, when I go back, I go back and critique things, right? When this whole thing ended very badly, I was like, man, what did I miss? So I would go back and replay things. And when I went back and replayed things hundreds and millions of times after this whole thing ended horribly, was that's when I went, that was the first instance or the first demonstration that the rest of us didn't matter. Our opinions were just rhetorical statements. Mm-hmm. Hey, I want your opinion. No, that was really a rhetorical statement. I really don't want it. This is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. I don't care what your say is. By the way, the old man and his little buddy and their two little followers and the cancer stick over here, um, they weren't doing the work. We were doing the work, right? They were too busy going, oh, you're not sophisticated to understand the financials and blah, 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 blah. We were the ones doing the heavy lifting. We were the ones, we were the boots on the ground. We were the ones interacting with these folks. And then you insert this horrible human being where our say didn't matter. And you could see the culture of that community 
when they removed us and said, she's going to be now the asset manager, you stopped hearing kids play in the playground. You stopped seeing people come out. And then that's when I was like, when I went back and played this later, right? Which mm-hmm. was, wow, you could, you can have 99 great humans that change a culture, but it only takes one to walk in and fuck it up for everybody. There are, and I know you have the same, but there are so many lessons learned from that experience. But there's two that stand out in my mind. And they're still at the forefront of my mind with everything I do in business today. That could be working with a team. That could be doing a job interview, whatever it is. And it's leadership and culture. And so to expand on that a bit, I learned what good leadership looks like and what bad leadership looks like. And I learned what questions to ask. Like, for example, in a job interview, what questions to ask about transparency? What is the leadership like? How do they interact with employees from the COO down to the janitor? How do I know on a daily basis what I'm supposed to do and how does that connect with the CEO? And the culture part is there was a period that you mentioned, I would say it's about 10 months maybe, where to this day, I worked with the best team I've ever worked with in my life. And to this day, I still use this. I say uh, we had a foxhole mentality culture. I've never been in a foxhole, never been in the military, but I've read about it <laughs> and I've heard people talk about it. And that, that mindset that every single person would drop whatever they were doing at whatever time of day to help someone else out. It didn't matter if it was four in the morning or 6 p.m. or 8 a.m. If if I called you and said, Jeremy, I need help with this, you're dropping whatever you're doing and you're coming to help me and vice versa. And there's so many definitions of culture. There's a thousand of them and none of them are necessarily incorrect, right? But I will very simply put it this way. I knew that we created a culture when the actions and behaviors and even words of our collective group were done without even thinking about it. So once we created that foxhole mentality culture where we're just dropping whatever we're doing, we don't even think about it. It's happened so often over a relatively long period of time that we've created that culture. And I still to this day hold that team for that period of time is like, that's, that's the barometer. And questions I ask to people in business about their teamwork and their culture is all based on that. And so it's just one of those things where in this darkness that we experienced, there was this light. That's what, I, that's what I call the blessing and the curse, right? Yeah. And, and I get goosebumps hearing you talk about that because you're absolutely right is you, me, Chris, Chad, Jeff. I mean, we were we were the curse of the failure in leadership, by the way, mm-hmm. of this retired Marine, his failure in leadership, his narcissism of his little buddy and little buddy's girlfriend, Cancer Stick, and the other two little ding-dongs, is <laughs> the curse of that. Everything that's a curse is a blessing. Everything is a blessing is a curse. Well, the curse of that, the blessing was, you're right, we created this foxhole mentality. Mm-hmm. The bond 
that those of us who were actually doing the right thing built a bond that you were right. It got to a point we could literally move, just like my days back in the Marine Corps, right? Mm -hmm. We could literally operate, and we didn't even need to use words in communication because that's how – that that's how in sync we were with each other, mm-hmm. right? We knew and we were delivering and that was pretty cool. You're right. That was that was pretty that was pretty awesome because I had I I, I have experienced that before. Yeah. I experienced I that in the Marine Corps. I even experienced it times in the PD when I was with the PD. And so I was very familiar with it. And then so all right, so we've made enough sausage out of that one because I do think that's an important element was for you to now not be able to go, hey, I read about this shit in a book, mm-hmm. but I actually got to experience it. Yeah, and I feel as weird as it sounds, considering it was an unfortunate end, I am fortunate that I was able to directly apply what I had just done in history and researched and wrote about in business. And that's kind of where I launched my subsequent business career is based on all these concepts of how do you build trust through empathy and how do you put yourself in your whatever the stakeholder group is customer employee how do you put yourself in their shoes so that you can co-create a solution with them so let's dive into that you know so you left there Mm -hmm. you got another job Mm -hmm. you went there you were trying to create that same culture there was some resistance Ultimately, you left that, and then you got another avenue that you went to, uh, and then you reached out to me a couple months ago, and we're like, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. And I want you to define what it is that you are now doing, but as soon as you said it, I was like, oh, I got to get you on the show. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that because there is a problem in business that's been around for a long time, which is you know, the illusion of leadership. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, people that think they're leaders that are not. And then there are actual leaders in an organization that you're like, actually, that person is a leader. Right. You want to get them elevated and culture and all of this, because especially in what I call the post pandemic world. Right. Right. I don't, I don't call it the world calls it, I guess, mm-hmm. is even more of a need because it's very disruptive. Are you in the office? Are you working remotely? You know, who knows who, is there a connection, so forth. So there's all this, there's all this ambiguity and confusion with these company cultures now that still need to stay intact and still need to be able to be successful and still need to be profitable, but they don't know how to do it. In comes Dr. <laughs> so let's talk about that. Let's dive into that. We've given the history. We've given the journey of why you know what you're doing. The fact that you didn't just study it, that you got to experience it, and then you went and tried to deploy it with a couple other companies, and then now you've hung your shingle, and what is Dr. Souther doing now? Professional speaker. Professional speaker. Yep. Yeah. So I... Actually, when I, during the summer of 2014, or maybe the fall of 2014, that's more accurate, shortly after we met each other, one thing I noticed very quickly about business people is that they love analogies, love analogies. And I get it. Like, I understand why. 
as imperfect as they all are, said like a, a true historian. But a lot of those business people love history analogies and love talking about military history. And so I'd always had this idea back then that how do I blend those two together? But I would always ask myself, why would I do that? I just got out of teaching. Why would I do that? It, it, this is just going to go wrong. So I would shoot it to the side. And I gave a presentation in the fall of 2014 to a group of people in Fort Worth. And I had to explain a business model. And it was kind of a hard to understand business model for anybody. Oh, yeah. That was the key to their business model was <laughs> yeah. that none of us knew I had any fucking clue what it was, right? <laughs> you're like, I'm confused. And you're like, oh, yeah, but, you know, we're going to reduce OPEX, increase NOI, and it's going to make the asset more profitable and blah, 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 through some, I don't know, the flex capacitor had sex with the muffler or whatever else or whatever analogy that guy would use, right? And then, But that was the key in it. But you're out trying to explain. Yeah. yeah. And I, I went to what I knew best. So it was a room of about 80 people of community um, workers who I wanted to help our apartments and our tenants. And I said, I thought to myself, I'm going to intertwine a history story here to explain the business model. And I vividly remember using Billy Mitchell, like the father of the Air Force, as my analogy. And as I was explaining, I thought, oh man, I don't know if this is a good idea. How am I, are they going to like get into talking about Billy Mitchell and the advent of air power in World War I and how you have to extract yourself from the weeds of the traditional way of doing business to do it differently? And people came up to me afterwards and were saying that was amazing. And I completely understand now what you do and why you do it. And in that moment, I thought, man, maybe I can just do this as a career. But again, I kept saying, why would I do that? I'm not going to do that. Just stay on this business path. Don't venture too far off. So that went by the wayside, that idea of speaking. And then a couple of years ago, I was in a bad spot from a career standpoint. Um, I was in a position where uh, the people were absolutely amazing. Love my boss, love the people. I just, my day-to-day -day responsibilities were not me, just weren't me. And this is where Rachel comes in again. We went to Louisiana for Christmas and her mom had bought a book, one of my books for one of her friends in Louisiana. And we went to eat lunch with this guy. And when I say Louisiana, I'm talking like, um, Louisiana. like true detective Louisiana. Yeah. <laughs> if you've seen season one of true detective. Oh, yeah. So we went to this small little restaurant and this guy was a Marine. He's a Vietnam veteran Marine. And so he read my book. And so we were just talking about it. And after that, so this is 2019, Christmas of 2019. I think, no, 2020. You know, it's Christmas of 2020. And so just like we, year. yeah. And so we left that lunch conversation and Rachel said, okay, this is the happiest I've seen you in two years. You have got to find a way to do this for a living. I don't know what that means, but you've got to find a way to talk about your book for a living. And so I did some research and I brought this idea of speaking, brought it back. And you know me, I don't just do research, but I do more research and more research and more research. If it can be done, it, it can be overdone. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so 
I found out that, yes, you can do this and you can make a good living doing it. And so I hired a speaking coach and we put a talk together, a keynote talk. And so now I'm talking to companies using the combined action platoon model of how do you build trust through empathy with your stakeholders, whatever that stakeholder group is. So if you're a franchisor and you need to build trust with your franchisees, here's how the Marines did it. And here's how I applied that in business. And here's how you can do it in your business. And so that's what I'm doing now. So now you're going around, you're doing speaking engagements and gifting folks with, hey, look, it's, so I know my audience has heard me say this a million times. Business gets complicated when you complicate it. Yes. Right? And um, that's why I like <laughs> My analogy is everything that I do, and you and I were talking when you swung by to get me to come in here and record, mm-hmm. right? So John lives literally two blocks from me, and uh, we've stayed very close. You know, we don't talk as often as we'd like to because our lives have been busy and everything else, but – you know, you just wanted to get me. We were talking about all the different businesses that, you know, I've built. And actually, as of today, with some fellow Marines that have come together, that um, today was the day that we started another company, a multi-million dollar company that we just said, you know what? We need to be able to execute. And guess what? We're using Marines to be able to execute because if the Marines are good at anything, it is execution, right? Mm-hmm. What is the mission? Let's execute. And so as we were driving over and, and you and I were talking and you heard a couple of my flavorful conversations with these two Marine Corps buddies of mine <laughs> as we're building this company, right, that already has. I mean, look, most startups, there's, there's a reason they're called a startup and they fail. It's very rare that you have a startup and it's already got a book of business, mm-hmm. right? And we got this book of business and whatnot. Is we, it was really kind of funny. I was thinking about this as we were coming up the elevator is – it didn't dawn on me till now d- doing this show <laughs> is subconsciously <laughs> I have taken everything that I've learned from you in these cat teams mm-hmm. and I've applied that to the same environments in my business, whether it's the span group and building trust with clients, right? A culture within the team of people that we have. We don't mm-hmm. hire, we hire right. Mm-hmm. We take our time and the because trust is the currency of business, not money. Building this maintenance company, right? Everything is about culture. All the tenants of these numerous properties. I mean, I'm making acquisitions of two properties a week right now. I'm on a pace of that with my investors. And, and remember when you and I were sitting in the office right before we left – is I said, yeah, what's really the difference between my competitor's asset and my asset? They're the same exact asset. It's we're better operators because we know how to create this culture, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not being in the convincing business because you can't convince anybody to do it. It's just to go and demonstrate that you're there to do it right and be a good human doing it, being a good steward, right? And and so, but with all my businesses, they all share the same thing, which is, hey, let's make this just like Jeff Foxworthy's TV show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader, right? <laughs> make it very simple, that because if it's simple, there's less confusion. Confusion creates fear. So if you remove confusion because it's simple, there's no fear. Instead, you get clarity. Clarity builds trust. And again, trust is the currency of business, right? Mm-hmm. And so now, and it's really funny because I've, I, I, is, 
I've got a, a few companies that as soon as we walk out of here, I'm going to connect you with that absolutely could use what you're doing, right? Is getting sure. in there and going, hey, look, we don't have to work against each other. We can work with each other. So when you're doing that, so when you're doing this, these speaking engagements, you know, give us a little bit of a preview. What does that look like? I mean, when you, when you have this room full of hundreds or even thousands of people, what is that like when you're going, hey, let's, let's talk about this? It's natural for me. Um, I don't want to sound pompous when I say that, but you got a PhD. Putting, You're putting, pompous, anyways. Putting, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well done. Pushing humbleness aside for once in my life, I was really good at teaching. Like I was good at getting in front of students, and not just teaching. Just like as I was inspired by Peter Worthing at TCU in that ancient China and Japan class. But I feel like I'm really good at explaining how and why this is important. And so when I get up on a stage, whether it's 20 people or 200 or 2,000, I go back into that moment where everything just flows naturally. And I know this, like I'm an expert in this field, in this subject, I should say, of combined action platoons. So... The flow of it is talking about how the Marines did this. So again, going back to what I was saying earlier, how and why did 19-year-old Marines live with Vietnamese villagers, knowing what we know about Marines in Vietnam? And you know how, how did they build trust through empathy? So going through that story, and then walking through, and we've talked about a little bit of it today, but walking through my story. So here's what the Marines did, and here's how I use that exact same model or principles from that model to solve these business problems. And you can do the exact same thing if you follow what these Marines did in Vietnam. And so I feel like the, the big takeaway is when you leave my talk, you should be able to tell a, per a random person that you see on the street, here's how you can build trust with somebody through empathy. And again, that can be internally. That can be how does leadership build trust with their employees? That could be how do customer service personnel build trust with customers? That could be how do we create a, best a better customer experience? through empathy, like all these different things, you can take the Marine Corps model from the combined action program and apply it anywhere. You can even apply it. I did this. I went to Vietnam in 2007 and did this exact same thing, explained, here's how you can create, talking to American and Vietnamese diplomats, here's how you can create an empathy-based foreign policy moving forward. Now, did they do it? Who knows? <laughs> but I at least, but I at least talk to them about that. And so it can be applied in so many different walks of life. But for me, I have specifically applied those lessons to business. So that's what my talk is about. So really, you're in the trust business. Yep. And so you're up there trying to make the connections where it's been disconnected between, you know, people, things, objects, and whatnot to establish trust, right? Yeah. I mean, and something as simple as like even a vehicle, right? If, 
if you buy a vehicle that's a lemon, you don't trust that it's going to mm-hmm. operate. If you buy a vehicle that is not a lemon and it's a high performance vehicle that does exactly what you trust it will do, trust goes, it, trust touch, it touches everything in our life, right? Do I trust the food that I'm eating that it was prepared? correctly that it's not going to give me salmonella or, or anything? Do I trust my neighbor that he, that neighbor's not going to break in my house when I'm on vacation? You know, do I trust that the mail delivery person is actually going to deliver my mail, which, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know that I trust that. Uh, you know, so trust, trust touches everything. So let's, let's dive, let's, let's kind of dive into that for a few minutes here is, so when you are making the connection between empathy and trust, right? Like what are what what are some things you're trying to do to invoke that motivation to let it all connect and come together? There's several stories that I tell in my keynote and give me one of them. I'll go through one of them. Yeah. Because if you want the rest of them, you're going to be able to go on and hire <laughs> yeah, John to yeah. hear the rest of them, right? You can email me at johnsouthern7 at gmail. <laughs> no, but uh, I'll actually tell th- this story. So it's about my application of what the Marines did in real life. And this is with the apartments. So the Marines, they're in the villages walking around, and they, just like we talked about, Instead of showing up in their cars and in their business casual, they're walking around shoeless. They take their boots off. Like they're really immersing themselves in the culture and in the process, figuring out what kind of needs do they have. But the real key is, yes, build trust by delivering needs. But if you can identify and then deliver the covert needs, so going back to the corpsman and the medic, if you can find and deliver the needs that they didn't even realize they had, now you've created a sustainable trust. And so that's what the corpsman did with his medical attention is he was able to turn um, an, a covert need into an overt need. So now the villagers who were really apprehensive about taking this Western medicine, I don't trust this, now are lining up by the hundred six months later. Incredible transformation. So I tell a story where as we're building trust with tenants, I ask one of them, what do you need? Like, if, if, I always used to say, if you could wave a magic wand, what would you want? Like, what do you need? And this one tenant, she said, I need a car. And which makes sense. They didn't have cars. Remember, we showed up with cars oh, yeah. and we're like, oh, God, we shouldn't have Literally, we were the only vehicles yeah. in the parking lot of 40 <laughs> units. Yeah. And yeah. so – then you just start asking, well, why do you need a car? I mean, a car sounds great, but why do you need a car? Well, because I work two jobs. Well, where do you work? I work two fast food jobs. And so I have to take the bus from here to my first job. Then I have to go from that job to my second job. Okay, well, why do you have two jobs again? Well, I have to work this one fast food job and this other one because the first one won't give me enough hours, so I have to work the second one. And you start getting asking why And eventually you get to, okay, you work two fast food jobs and you can't get enough hours at either because you eventually get to, I don't have a high school education. She's got two kids and she's running around like crazy. She works all these hours. She can barely pay rent with these two fast food jobs. So now what we've done is she thought the need was a car, which is great. That's still a need. But the covert need that she didn't even realize that she needed was 
a high school education. She needed a GED. So we had childcare on site because that was one of the biggest overt needs. So we cleared out an apartment and we had this nonprofit there that was childcare and helped them with their homework after school. And so she was, she had two kids. So she was able to use that service for her childcare and was able to use the education classes that we brought on site in that empty apartment and was able to get her GED and was able to shed those two fast food jobs and become um, a front desk person, a, a job with benefits. And so now you've created that sustainable trust by going from, oh, you need a car to, oh, you really, you really need to do this first. And once you do that, then all these other things can happen. And now, then after that, the key point is you have to preserve that culture. You have to preserve what you've created. And in my talk, I call it shitbirds. So I say kick out the shitbirds. The Marine Corps in Vietnam, these combined action platoons, I mean, there, again, there's 10 Marines in a village, 10. And at any point, 350 Viet Cong can attack the village, and there's 10. So you would think any warm body who's a trained marksman who shows up is welcomed. Mm -mm. So the cap commander had to make sure. So they, they're friends with the villagers now. And there's a story of a Marine showing up to take the spot of a guy who had died in combat. And he came from this culture where you go on search and destroy missions in Vietnam and you come across a villager, you assume they're an enemy and there's deadly force, there's aggression sometimes. So he shows up, didn't like the way a villager was looking at him, smashed him in the head with the butt of his rifle and the cap commander kicked him out immediately because it takes so long to build trust and it takes that long to lose it. And they literally died. People died to create that trust with these villagers. So he'll be damned <laughs> if so, he called it, they, they're called shitbirds. Some shitbirds going to show up and destroy that trust. So kick them out immediately. And so that becomes the next really crucial part of maintaining that trust is You've got the needs, you've created the trust, you think now you've got to preserve it, kick out the shitbirds. You know, so I've been telling my daughter for years, time is a commodity that you can't buy more of, you can't get a refund on it once spent. Mm -hmm. Reputation cannot be bought with money, but only be built with time. But you can lose it in a matter of seconds and over a single dollar. And that is exactly what you're delivering is look if you're going to do the hard work make sure you maintain the hard work or else it just goes back to its original format mm -hmm. right exactly yeah so man god I just get goosebumps just sitting here as a matter of fact <laughs> whenever your next speaking engagement is let me know i want to come seriously because i've always known you're very careful about how you present and you're very methodical about your delivery and wow. I mean, like, look, if the audience listening in on this isn't inspired by just hearing how you present your, your, your methodologies is then y'all are listening to the wrong show. <laughs> so <laughs> okay. let's go back in time to 20 year old self, right? 
Oh, God. <laughs> 20, 20 Long old, hair in a band 20, playing at the moon, trying to scoop up Rachel. Is oh. a lot of lessons, right? I mean, you, the audience has heard your journey go through all this to where you experience this failure in academia and then your first real job to go do this ends up in a failure. Not because of our intentions or anything, because somebody else was in control, right? Mm-hmm. And they had bad intentions. So uh, so then, man, you just shit the bed twice, right? <laughs> and then you now get to where you're at, right? That's a long, hard journey, right? A lot of lessons learned. I mean, sure. I mean that didn't come without any road rash, right? Mm-hmm. There's a thousand things we could tell our audience, right? Or, or tell ourselves if we went back in time. But if you could go back in time, if you had a magic wand to wave, to go back in time, to say... Self, I know you won't listen to the encyclopedia of things I'd be willing to gift you with, but what is the one thing that you would like, if you do nothing else, either do or don't do this? Attack life with why nots, not whys. There are, and my example is my professional speaking. I had this idea in 2014 to do what I'm doing now. But I asked, why? Why would I do that? And then the branches from that why are, I shouldn't do that. It's not going to work. It's going to fail. Instead, just why not? Now, you don't want to be reckless about it. (laughs) You don't want to approach that, you know, without thinking about it. But yeah, attack with why nots instead of why. And I actually, the footnote to that is I got that from, there's a really good YouTube clip, YouTube clip, from a director named Kevin Smith, who did all of the, for the younger crowd, you might not know this, but yeah. Jay and Silent Bob movies. Mm-hmm. And he has a really good story that he tells about, uh, there, there's a kid in the audience that comes up at the end of his talk and asks if, and it's this kid that's an aspiring director like Kevin Smith. And so he asked Kevin Smith, do you have any advice for me? And so Kevin Smith tells this story about being with his family on this certain occasion and his dad died suddenly while his family was on vacation somewhere. And he asked, he wasn't in the room when this happened, but Kevin Smith asked his brother who was in the room, what happened? Like, and he said, I don't know. I think he had a heart attack, but dad just started yelling. He just started screaming and that's how it ended. And so Kevin Smith tells this kid, I can never get that out of my head. And ever since that happened, I thought to myself, don't go out screaming. Like, don't go out thinking I should have done this or I should have done that. And he said, surround yourself with people who are why not people. Don't surround yourself with why people. And if you do that, I can't guarantee success for where you want to go, but you won't have any regrets. And so... I took that and thought, man, that is a great way to think about life in general. And so when you ask that question, the first thing that came to mind is just say, why not? Let's give this a shot. Sound advice from Dr. Souther. So the audience wants to engage you, get connected with you, bring you into doing a speaking engagement. How do they get in touch with you? So best way is I'll give you my email address. Just send an email to johnsouthard7 at gmail.com. And my name, I think, will be on the podcast or under the YouTube video clip. 
So johnsouthard7 at Gmail. And the other best way is LinkedIn. I'm always on LinkedIn. So I think it's John, there's not many John Southards out there, okay? So if you go and just type in John Southard, you'll see me. And I think the URL is John Southard History PhD. So those are the two best ways. Okay. And for the audiences out there listening and didn't have a chance to write that down, of course, you can always go to our website, myexperiencerealtor.com, click on the podcast button, go down to John Southard. We'll have links where you can get directly connected to him to make it easier. And as always, if you're going to buy and sell real estate anywhere on the planet, hit that find a trusted professional on the landing page. Even if it's not here, we'll make sure you get the right advisor to help you navigate your real estate needs. John, thank you for coming, brother. Appreciate thank you. your time. Thanks, man. What'd you think? Oh, good, dude. Yeah? That was good. Thanks. <laughs>